Welcome to the 349th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about environmental history and activism during the COVID pandemic with Andrea Gaynor, Katie Holmes, and Ruth Morgan. As a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 3.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 30th, 2021, there are 4,772,958 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is George Holliday, who taped police beating of Rodney King, dies at 61. This appeared in the New York Times, September 22nd, 2021, by Clay Risen. George Holliday, the plumber who fortuitously videotaped the nighttime traffic stop in which Los Angeles police officers beat the black motorist Rodney G. King in 1991, an incident that led to a closely watched trial and nearly a week of deadly violence across the city after the officers were found not guilty, died on Sunday, September 19th in Los Angeles. He was 61. His friend Robert Wollenweber said the death at a hospital was caused by complications of COVID-19. Brainy yet distinct video of four white officers assaulting a black man is among the 20th century's most recognized images, one that shocked many white Americans but confirmed what many black Americans had already known about police treatment of them. In the decades since, advancements in technology have allowed thousands to follow Mr. Holliday's lead recording numerous instances of police violence against people of color and forcing a recognition of what many say is systemic racism in the nation's justice system in the United States. Holiday was living in the Lakeview Terrace section of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley when on March 3rd, 1991, he and his wife Maria were shaken awake by the sound of a helicopter flying low over their apartment complex. It was 12.45 a.m. and the two had been fast asleep with plans to rise early to see a friend run in a local marathon. To record his friend's feet, Mr. Holliday had bought a Sony camcorder and was still learning to use it when he and his wife went to their balcony to see what was causing the commotion. Across the road, they saw several police officers approaching a vehicle from behind. Mr. Holliday, sensing something important afoot, ran into his living room to get his video camera. While there, he heard his wife shout, oh my God. He returned to see four officers beating Mr. King on the ground picked him, hit him with nightsticks, and shocked him with a taser before hogtying him and leaving him lying there until an ambulance arrived. Mr. Holliday filmed about nine minutes of the incident, though he missed the beginning. He was inside getting the camera, a point that defense lawyers would raise, saying that Mr. Holliday had not seen or captured a moment in which they said Mr. King had threatened the officers. 
Later that day, the holidays went to their friend's race and then a wedding. It wasn't until the next morning on March 4th that they called the Los Angeles Police Department to see what had happened to Mr. King. The switchboard operator hung up on him, Mr. Holiday said. He called a local TV station, KTLA, which sent a reporter to interview him, and the reporter borrowed the tape. The report about the incident ran on the news that night, and the station sent a clip of Mr. Holiday's video to CNN, with which KTLA had an agreement. The next day, Mr. Holiday went to the station to retrieve his tape. Aware that he had something sensational in his hands, he asked for payment. The station gave him $500, but he later said it didn't tell him that the tape had already been copied and shared. By the end of that day, the story was international news, with a clip of Mr. Holiday's video playing around the world. Law enforcement got involved. The police arrived at his home with a subpoena for his tape and recorder, and the FBI opened an investigation. Though millions of Americans owned video recorders at the time, their use by so-called citizen journalists to record things like police abuse was new. Mr. Holiday unintentionally pointed the way, presaging a day when cell phone recordings of police violence would be common. Rodney King video was the Jackie Robinson of police videos, the Reverend Al Sharpton told the New York Times in 2020. Mr. Holliday's video played a critical role in the assault trial of four officers involved in the King beating. In April 1992, a jury found three of them not guilty and declared a mistrial in the case of the fourth officer, a verdict that set off six days of violence in Los Angeles, leading to the death of 54 people and an estimated $1 billion in damage. Mr. Holliday and Mr. King met just once, by chance, not long after the first not guilty verdict. Mr. Holliday was filling his car at a gas station when someone shouted his name. I looked over and I didn't recognize him because the only pictures I had seen of him were of his face, all swollen and beaten up, but now he'd recovered, Mr. Holliday said in an interview with the British newspaper, The Sun. He could tell that I didn't know who he was, and he said, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no. He said, well, you saved my life. The story was George Holliday, who taped police beating of Rodney King, dies at 61 of COVID-19. This appeared in the New York Times, September 22nd of this year. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, one I've been really greatly looking forward to, and let me introduce my three guests to you. Professor Andrea Gaynor is an environmental historian and ARC Future Fellow at the University of Western Australia, where she's researching histories of urban wild nature. She's Vice President of the European Society for Environmental History and a convener of the Biliar Group of Professors for Environmental Responsibility. Professor Katie Holmes is an environmental historian teaching at La Trobe University in Melbourne and is director of the Center for the Study of the Inland. She writes on agricultural history and is currently working on two separate projects, one on drought and one on water. She also works in gender and oral history projects. Dr. Ruth Morgan teaches at the Australian National University where she's the director of the Center for Environmental History. She's writing an international history of climate change under contract with Bloomsbury, and she is a lead author in Working Group 2 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Sixth Assessment Report. Andrea Gaynor, Ruth Morgan, and Katie Holmes, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. us, Scott. So I'd like to 
start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there close to you. And I'm going to combine. I also usually ask folks if they'd be willing to share a memory of the, and this is what I call the impossible assignment now, to find one memory of the time. But I'm going to ask you to do both those things, kind of tell us where you are and what it looks like, and also maybe a memory from this pandemic time. Katie, can I start with you on that? Yeah, sure. So, Scott, I'm in, in Melbourne, and right at the moment, the pandemic is not looking so good. We are in, um, I don't know, I think day 230-something of lockdown. Uh, so Melbourne had a very extended lockdown last year when we, after which we thought we'd kind of beaten the virus, we got from high case numbers down to zero. And we were in that present state for a while um, and then a few short lockdowns. And most recently we're in what we call lockdown six and it's been going on for months now and it's predicted to go on for a few more weeks yet. Uh, our case numbers are rising quite steeply. So today's case numbers were about um, 1,400. So that's the highest that they've been through the whole pandemic. Um, and uh, so things are, are not looking so good here, pandemic-wise. The hope is that with the vaccine that will soon hit 70% double-dosed, and then 80% double dust, and that will mark the beginning of when we can begin to come out of lockdown. So we're all anxious for that time. <laughs> so, so that's where we are in the pandemic. Uh, I might say that the so far the it has been very concentrated in areas of lower socioeconomic um, areas in, in Melbourne um, that happened last year as well and that's where the predominantly both the cases and the deaths have been as it has been you know across the world and um, certainly in Australia and I think um, just on that one of my strongest memories was of July last year when there are a number of COVID positive cases in some of Melbourne's um, public housing towers, uh, towers that hold about 3,000 residents and uh, the government made a decision to lock them down in a hard lockdown and within a space of literally a few hours they went into that lockdown. They were surrounded by, by police. They had fences right around them and they were in that state for two weeks, um, unable to go shopping, unable to go outside the fencing. And uh, the housing towers, you know, home to some of um, some of Melbourne's most culturally diverse residents, um, lots of refugee families in there, lots of um, families who are particularly vulnerable. So it was a particularly um, striking and fairly brutal um, demonstration of state authority and state power and also of considerable inequity. At the same time, it also sort of unleashed this this backlash against the government and a huge outpouring of community concern and response of community reaching out to those residents and trying to assist them in all sorts of ways. So, But it was um, a very memorable moment and there's a particular picture of a child standing at the window with her hand up against the window, high, you know, high up in these towers that captured the sort of sense of desperation and the feeling of being so, so locked in. Thank you for sharing that. And, and usually when we think of you know lockdown, which has this carceral sort of 
connotation, we don't, we did not tend to think of it also as including carceral technology, but you're describing one in which the two are, are joined. Did I hear you right? The 230 days of lockdown in Melbourne? You heard me right. You heard me right. So we have had some periods in between when we were in a, a state of, you know, more or less normal life. Um, but yes, it's been, it's been very extended and we're all very weary of it. Imagine so. I, I think I went through, I'd have to go back and look and see, according to the law, maybe 75 days of it in New Jersey, and that was uh, intolerable. Important, but intolerable in many ways. So Yeah, I think that's one of, been one of the hard things this, this past lockdown is that whereas the others, we there was a purpose and actually you could see that numbers were going down and, and the lockdown seemed to be achieving something. This time it's been harder to see that because the numbers are still been going up. Mm. And of course, um, for people who've got young children, they're homeschooling, you know, it's it's really very stressful. And um, as I say, it's it's wearing. And, and you can see the social fabric now starting to fracture in a way that was not evident last year. And I can talk more about that later if you like, but it's, you know, there's been lots of protests on the street recently still fairly small groups but but that just was not part of the story last year and that kind of sense of aggression and violence and anger towards the government has found a voice and a manifestation that is pretty scary actually. Andrea and let's hear oh. last week just to throw into the mix. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's good. And we'll definitely come back to those themes. And thank you for those such vivid images. And and um, uh, let me bring Andrea in with the same questions. Just tell us, orient us a little bit to where you are and, and what it looks like there. And, and maybe also if you'd share something resonant about this time, a memory that you have. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm in a small town on the south coast of Western Australia. And Western Australia has long been... <laughs> or well, the southwest of Western Australia has long been characterised by its isolation, which in some cases has been, um, you know, a, a bit of a problem for us, but in this case has been a very significant advantage. So uh, my experience of COVID has been like it's not really happening or it's happening elsewhere. It's almost as if it's a movie. Uh, I've never had to wear a mask. We've had a short period of lockdown in April last year. Uh, but apart from the inability to travel interstate or internationally, and, and that has been possible for some people, but I haven't been willing to take the risk um, because of the state's hard line on, um, you know, uh, hotel quarantine for re-entry. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been like we've been in this blessed little corner of the world where life has gone on as usual. So overall, Western Australia has only had just over a thousand COVID cases during the entire pandemic and only nine deaths, uh, which is really remarkable. So for people like me who have not needed to travel, who have family locally, um, it, it's been, it, it's felt like an incredibly fortunate time for us looking on and seeing the kind of hardship and struggle um, and tragedy that's been experienced in the rest of the world. We've been largely sheltered from all of that. Of course, the downside is those people with family uh, elsewhere have been completely cut off from them. Um, it's been very difficult for families separated within and outside of Western Australia. Um, Western Australian residents unable to return home because they can't afford hotel quarantine or can't get a, a guaranteed seat on a flight. Um, 
So for those inside, uh, our Prime Minister referred to us as living in the cave. For those inside the cave, it's been a kind of blessed, you know, enchanted existence, but, uh, but certainly not for everyone. How many people in the cave have family outside? I mean, it's, that sounds like it would be incredibly stressful, basically facing the choice of you know, not being in contact at all. Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't. I don't actually know. I mean, the state has around two million people, uh, two and a half million people in total, and oh yeah, I wouldn't really know how many. I mean, many of them would have family overseas um, or interstate to a greater or lesser degree. I mean, there have been periods um, of COVID um, or lesser COVID restriction where people have been able to travel interstate, but overseas has really been off the menu altogether. It's been interesting to see the flow and effects of that, for example, with leisure and tourism. So people would ordinarily go to Bali for their holiday, haven't been able to. So everybody has been traveling within the state instead. And it's been quite good, I guess, for local um, tourist industries. You haven't been able to buy a caravan or a camper trailer for love or money because everybody's taking off into the, <laughs> the mm -hmm. outback here. But, you know, I mean, th these are, of course, real, very, extremely minor uh, problems compared to what the rest of the world is going through. It's, you know, I think about the United States in this regard and, and in the early days of the pandemic, you know, it was the West Coast and the East Coast that saw these tremendous numbers in March and April of last year and more rural parts of the United States um, described their experience much as you described yours, but they did not put into place uh, quarantine measures or any lockdown measures. And so it was a matter of time. Uh, and I wonder if that sort of tension has been hanging over you there, although it sounds like the non-pharmaceutical interventions have been pretty strong there to keep that from happening. Yeah, yeah, they have been. Uh, I mean, the government has been extremely strict on quarantine, but to be honest, we've also been extremely lucky. There have been a couple of escapes from hotel quarantine, including um, a Delta uh, variant, and just nobody got infected, which is remarkable. You know, it could so very easily have turned out very differently and, and could yet because I think a lot of people have become quite complacent. They're, they're used to cave life and they think that it won't happen here. So our vaccination rates are lagging behind the rest of Australia where COVID seems a much more imminent threat. And particularly in my little corner of the world, which is, you know, it's also remote from Perth. So it seems like it, it, you know, the outside world is really not going to enter any time, but it could, of course. So, um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing those perspectives, Ruth. Let me bring you in. Um, same thing, just give us a sense of what it's looking like where you are and a memory from, from this time period for you. Sure. Um, yes, it's, it's really interesting just to see these contrasts. Um, I live in Canberra in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, um, and we had a pretty good run, I think, as far as the rest of the country went, or at least in terms of the major cities. Um, we, uh, because we are relatively small, um, we we were sort of enjoying this kind of unexpected luxury of, of being able to go about our daily lives for quite um, a long stretch of time. Once there was the initial lockdown um, around April, May last year, um, and that was, you know, quite scary. We didn't really know what we were up against. And then there was this long period of extended um, normality, for want of a better word. But I think over the past six to maybe we are coming up to eight weeks now, we've been in quite a strict lockdown um, where uh, we are all working from home, classes have gone back online, um, and uh, we are basically waiting out, making sure that enough of the population is vaccinated so that 
um, those restrictions can ease. And I'm pleased to say that um, I think the ACT has tipped over 90% of uh, the population has been at least got one of their vaccinations done. Um, and that is partly because of the demographic that lives here with the you know, the national um, capitals. So there is, a, I suppose, quite a highly educated, um, high socioeconomic um, demographic. But just like it has in um, other parts of Australia, it's really hit um, uh, less affluent um, groups really hard. And in terms of, you know, these same, same questions that get raised about preparedness, about um, all that kind of effort that could have perhaps you know got us over the line um and maybe some things are very difficult to plan for and i suspect a pandemic would be right up there so um the act government i suppose is also challenged in a different way to say wa or victoria is that we are a, a territory within a state and we are in new south wales and so it's very difficult there's a lot of border crossing um, and although that's much more regulated at the moment, it does mean that it's very hard to have an independent policy. So um, that does cause a few, um, I suppose, wrinkles in, in whatever plans there might be to relax restrictions. So, yeah, it's a strange time. Um, I suppose my memory, um, it's much less profound than Katie's and much more um, self-involved, but was uh, moving to Canberra during the pandemic and it was... Uh, a very strange time to move cities, moving from Melbourne up to Canberra, um, not really sure where we, um, what our long-term plan would be because although we had jobs, we didn't have our accommodation arranged and it was around this time that borders were starting to close. And so it was really a bit of a, um, a quite a strange kind of jump into action, throwing things in the car and just getting moving in case those borders would close. So, um, very strange time to, to join a new university, a new workplace, not really being able to meet colleagues in person, not being able to meet your students in person. Um, very unusual. And I'm a homebody. I'm happy being at home, but it has its limits. I can really relate to that because I moved to, and took this job here at, at KAIST in February and, and, and left America and came here to do that. And, you know, uh, as academics, I, I don't mind time working at home. That's fine. But there are these sort of like getting into a new place experiences where you expect to be with people and with students, particularly. And it's been that's been a challenge. Um, Very strange. So you get there, but it takes longer, you know, in, in my experience. Well, I, this is um, it's great to hear from all three of you and get these three vantage points. And Remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Ruth Morgan, Katie Holmes, and Andrea Gaynor today about. Uh, and the topic of our conversation is environmental history. And um, I found the three of you together in this great piece called "Doing Environmental History in Urgent Times," which appeared last summer in History Australia. And I want to follow up on some of the ideas in here. And I guess my first question to you really has to do with with about environmental history, but the particularities of doing environmental history. Um, with an Australian focus. I know you don't only work on Australia, but in this piece, you talk a lot about the Australian 
lens. And, and Katie, I'm going to start with you because I, I want to sort of quote you from this a sentence. Um, you talk about, you say, many of the environmental catastrophes predicted to happen within our Anthropocene age have already been experienced by Aboriginal people in Australia as a result of colonization, displacement, local climatic change, ecological destruction, cultural dislocation, poverty, and violence. That's just one of the vantage points that that you bring to bear. I guess I'll open it up and ask you if you want to take any part of that. But what does it mean to do not only environmental history in urgent times, but also in Australia? Thanks, Scott. Okay, I'll jump in there. Um, I think one of the contexts of Australia is this uh, now increasing. We're we're very much aware now of the of the deep time of the Australian continent and I mean that both in terms of deep human time the deep human past in Aboriginal um, presence and and uh, culture and and the management of lands that they have practiced for over 60,000 years um, also the extraordinary geographical time of the continent it is the um, the driest continent of the world one of the oldest um, and that has Profound ecological consequences and environmental consequences. So, in the area, for example, that Andy and I've worked on in the Maui lands, um, really fragile soils um, that that are so readily have been so readily affected by settlement practices and particularly farming practices, um, and all the legacies that they have brought with them. So that's that's one aspect of it. Um, and uh, then I think that there's this sort of the the period of of since colonisation in, in Australia has been relatively short. So, you know, what we're talking about 220 years or so, 230 years, um, and within that time we have seen extraordinary ecological change and and damage. So it's like this. Um, that that has been condensed in a pretty short period period of time. So we, so you can see it really quite as a historian, you can see that that trajectory and change really clearly. Um, so you go from a period of relatively stable environmental conditions under Aboriginal um, management and care and custodianship to this period of rapid environmental change, um, and so that that. As an environmental historian, you're continually aware of the impact of the settler presence on the land, I guess, um, and in and in the cities. And so that's, I think, one of the things that it, that um, is very striking and different about being an environmental historian in Australia. And just to follow up, um, Katie, with one thing, just about the title, you know, urgency, and and the concept of urgent times in 2020 without saying COVID, you're invoking COVID, but i wonder to what extent COVID was in your minds as you sat down to write this or it's not it, it, that's one of the kind of extraordinary things about the timing of this paper is that actually we wrote it we'd finished the first draft of it it had gone out to reviewers prior to the pandemic so it was all written, and in fact, not just prior to the pandemic, but prior to the devastating Black Summer fires of uh, 2019-2020. So we wrote it in the context of very severe drought in the eastern states, 
um, and obviously of pressing climate change and and you know global warming and the and the crisis of biodiversity. But then we had the fires of 20, um, 2019, 2020, and then we had COVID. And so but there's a postscript to the article which sort of tries to bring that in in a, in a sentence um, during the paragraph. Yeah. But the urgency was not the urgency of COVID, ironically. Yeah. Well, I, thank you for that. And for people who are, uh, don't follow academic publication timelines, this is um, the way this works, um, that you can let an article go and it could be a year before you might mm -hmm. see it in print. It could be the same time for a manuscript. And so for people who work um, in history or work in disaster history, you don't define yourselves that way. I'm defining you that way. But um, things will happen in the interim. And I just thought that was quite interesting. That um, and, I, and, and Ruth, I want to bring you in on that because part of what you point to in the piece, and I'm going to quote you here, it, it, talking about um, the kind of terminology that we use. And I think urgency is an interesting choice in the title. Mm -hmm. You say, I'm quoting you here, as much as the language of crisis and emergency can help to gather momentum for transformative change, I'm cautious, you, you're cautious about its proliferation as its use has so often produced lasting, undemocratic and unequal effects. So I, I really like that part of the essay because it um, as a person who I use the language of disaster and crisis a lot, but it it does lock you into a temporality, I think that that you're you're struggling with. And so, as a historian, you want to deep, as Katie said, you want to invoke talk about deep time Anthropocene change over long periods, and then these disasters come up, and we have to find a way to somehow talk about them both. So I wonder if you could explore that a little bit. Sure, um, it's probably. It's certainly not an original um, sort of concern, I suppose. It's something that Mike Hume has also um, expressed concerns about. And I suppose he's continued that critique into the way that COVID has been um, managed in the UK. And I suspect he would look very darkly on um, the approach of these various Australian governments, the various states and territories. And um, I, we might differ on, on that interpretation, but I think in terms of I suppose, environmental governance, we, on the one hand, that language is really important. We do need to galvanise people um, and wake people up, um, especially when, as we saw unfold in over the black summer, the 2019-2020 bushfires of how there was so much energy put into um, obfuscating the crisis, that there was so much denial that was active even as the fires were raging. You know, it is incredibly frustrating to see that kind of willful um, misinformation and, and to see the consequences of that kind of, um, uh, uh, I suppose, abuse of power, basically. Um, but at the same time, you know, we know when we study disasters that they are not just that bushfire. It's the long recovery afterwards. It's the long lead up that got us into this situation. And I think if we can broaden the frame, the temporal frame, the frame in which we talk about these issues, perhaps it becomes less of a issue that can be put in a box, that can be um, blinkered off, and that there could be a wider awareness of, um, a wider understanding of all the many factors that are interrelated when we talk about climate emergency and biodiversity collapse, that these are not things that are um, happening tomorrow, they're happening now and those processes are in place. So I think language matters and we know that as, as historians and I suppose, um, you know, thinking thinking more broadly about how we, how we talk about 
these issues. And, and I suppose it's not about preaching to the converted. This is a, a matter of trying to engage more people that might not otherwise see themselves as having something to contribute or, or something to say. Well, I think that's a good, I'm going to, Andrea, I want to bring you in if, if you want to comment on anything that's been said, but I, I also, there was a part in the essay that I wanted to um, bring you in because of, I thought, a really important use of language and the concept that you invoke of, of what you call radical remembering. And you talk about activism. I mean, you talk about environmental histories. I'm just quoting you here. I'm quoting you all because it's so beautifully written. Um, environmental histories are needed now, you say, to counter dangerous and proliferating historical falsehoods. They're essential to diverse forms of radical remembering. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? And I guess I'm curious too to know, is, is this a kind of call to action for people for academics? Or is this meant to slip the bounds of the academy and use environmental history tools to establish a broader base of action? Or maybe it's both. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I, I think it's both. I think um, academia has no particular ownership over historical, uh, you know, storytelling. Certainly, our research is very useful. We're in the privileged position of um, being able to go into archives and spend time really deeply digesting stories and looking at them from a, a range of different perspectives. Um, but I don't think we have a monopoly on historical storytelling by any stretch of the imagination. And I do work with activist groups to uh, to help to preserve and to tell their stories, which I think are really important, uh, both for the, the kind of institutional memory of those groups so that they know what they've done in the past that that's worked well, what hasn't worked so well, um, but also um, to give a sense of encouragement. Um, you know, environmental activism can be a really hard slog. It can be, uh, um, you know, it, it can be deeply distressing at times when you, you fight and you fight and you fight and very often you don't win. Um, and you can see that there, there are so many problems ongoing. So um, I think story, historical stories are important to recognise the kind of efforts that people have put in and any kind of small gains that have been made. Um, in terms of radical remembering, that that's part of what I meant by that, I guess, but also just in terms of um, remembering what we've lost, remembering what the world used to be. Uh, there, there's the problem of shifting baselines that I'm sure uh, we're familiar with for those listeners who aren't. It's the idea that when you uh, perceive an ecosystem, you regard it as natural. You don't understand that that, that ecosystem or that place uh, might have already been quite dramatically changed, um, for example, by human action. So um, we, we are already, I think, in a time where we tend to forget how uh, lively um, the, the world used to be and, and the proliferation of life that has already been sacrificed. So to some extent, we've already lowered the bar for restoration and for environmental action. And I think it's, it's important to remember that. But more generally, I think this idea of radical remembering um, is a kind of counter to the, the kind of late capitalist condition of always being lulled into the, the new story, into the new crisis, into the, the, the new thing. Um, and I guess, it, again, returning to our um, uh, uh, discussion of temporality, extending that temporality beyond the churn of the new cycle. So taking, taking time to remember over longer periods um, the kinds of environmental changes, both positive and negative, that, that we've experienced. And without, without deliberately remembering, we are consigned to forgetting those stories. And I guess it's more generally just an argument for the place of environmental history in public discourse. 
In, in relation to what Ruth was saying or what, the point you were making earlier about crisis, um, I mean, moments of crisis are incredibly um, unstable in a way. They uh, allow for um, powerful groups to really seize power and uh, frame the crisis, and I think that is an incredibly um, important moment in the way that these crises are addressed. And, of course, this will come to no surprise to you as uh, a scholar of disasters, but uh, I thought it was important to, to point that out because, of course, how you frame a crisis uh, has an important determina determination on what kinds of actors are summoned to deal with it and what, what kinds of solutions are proposed. So, yeah, those moments of the, the kind of declaration and understanding of a crisis can be points at which um, power to, to shape solutions and determine the actors summoned are, um, are revealed. Thank you for that. I think it's, it's, it's very well said. And as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, recent research, last time I got to do research in Louisiana um, and meeting with um, particularly uh, the Louisiana Environmental Action Network there, people who live in St. John the Baptist Parish there, which so they call, can they call Cancer Alley there. And in, the, in conversations there with the activist community and asking, what do you, what do you want or what, how can we work together trying to build relationship? And, and it took a while to, I think, for everybody there to really hear what they were saying, which is, uh, we want an archive. We want an archive. We want, and what they were telling us was that in a way that we had devalued the actual things that we could help with. I mean, they know how to do activism. They know how to get news media attention. They know how to do monitoring. They can do all of those things and they do them very well. But I felt like at that moment, I was like, wow, we've really undersold the power of environmental storytelling as a tool of activism. And so what you're all saying and what you said in the piece really resonated with me along those lines. I, and I don't know if Andrea, or if any of you, are you engaged in that kind of work? I mean, can you talk a little bit more about your own, your own actions in that regard? Uh, yeah, I can. Katie, did you have something to add earlier? Well, it's a different point, so I might come back to it. I'll let, I'll let you answer um, what Scott was going to say. So, and then I'll then I'll maybe chime in later. Yep, yep, yep. No worries. Yep. Um, yes. Well, at, at the moment, I'm engaged in a couple of projects where we are looking to preserve archives. One is the history of land care, um, and well, what we're calling community-led land management more generally um, in Western Australia and perhaps even beyond, where. Uh, you have a bunch of small groups, community groups that are that are community driven, community led. Um, they relate to a, a specific geographical area, um, and they have taken on board either their their catchment or their uh, low, patch of local urban bushland, and they work to to replant trees, to 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 do weeding, to eradicate feral species, to fence stock out, whatever it might be, whatever it is the land needs. Um, and these groups really flourished in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, since then, there have been some kind of structural and funding changes that have meant a lot of them have come under pressure. Some of them have disbanded. Um, but there is this um, incredible legacy of work that has been done by these groups. Sure, the environmental problems are ongoing, but they would be a lot worse if not for the really patient, sustained, hands-on work of these groups. And they all have histories that I think are worth worth preserving. Um, and yeah, we've been working to um, sort of highlight the work of these groups and try and empower them to be able to at least uh, do some uh, rudimentary conservation work on their own records. 
we would like ideally to be able to set up a kind of institutional repository whereby volunteers, you know, with those organisations can, can scan records and and um, have them deposited for safekeeping or at least digital copies deposited for safekeeping while they keep the originals. Um, so, yeah, that's just one um, example. The, the forest movement in Western Australia has just had a big win with the government's recent declaration to the end of native forest logging, which was a, a good kind of COVID period news story. But, um, yeah, so I've been working with them to think about preserving some of their um, archives as well with the, with the State Library. So that one, that one is a work in progress because I think there are some really important stories to come out of that for other places around the world that haven't yet achieved that milestone of, um, you know, the end to native forest logging. And I'm looking particularly here at British Columbia. So, um, so yeah, those are some of the things that, that I've been doing. I don't know if Ruth or Katie want to add to that. Did you want to jump in, Rick? Oh, sure. I suppose my, my efforts have been very modest in contrast, um, uh, but I have tried to, as part of, I suppose, an effort to, um, uh, you know, meet people in a new city. I've, I've been involved in um, working with the local conservation council here. They're coming up to a 40th anniversary milestone and it dawned on them that they had been so busy campaigning and, and doing their important work that they had never really thought about an archive or a, ever writing a history. They have newsletters in various sort of repositories, but not necessarily in their own office. Um, and what was originally a project that was supposed to be sort of coming up to a particular, you know, a celebratory event, um, we're working on oral histories with um, all sort of ma manner of their members, some who are no longer involved, some who, you know, were involved at the outset or some who have just joined recently. And it's just been an amazing cross-section of the community from all different walks of life. Um, and this has been really sort of um, really hopeful, sort of just as the person sort of listening and engaging with these people, such a hopeful experience. Um, it's really been, yeah, really rewarding for me and hopefully for them as well. There, there's quite a thirst for it among local groups, isn't there, Ruth? I mean, yeah. I've been almost surprised, as you say, Scott, that that they have welcomed um, historical mm. help. You know, they do need help. They're all still busy planting trees and doing activist work, so um, they need help. But they recognise the I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people within these movements recognise the importance of preserving their records and getting those stories told, not least because they're, they're trying to attract more uh, more people to their to their cause. So, you know, there's part... I wouldn't call it marketing exactly, but there's... Um, certainly a public promotion element to it. Um, but they, you know, they, they feel that these stories are deeply important and I certainly agree with that. Katie, just bringing you in on this, anything you wanted to add? Well, I was just going to pick up on the sort of comment that Ruth was making there about the role of the historian not only in helping to preserve archives but also to create them and to generate, particularly the oral history archive. Um, and I've done quite a lot of oral history work in various places and including with, with a local group here that was you know around conserving an area of parkland and um just recognizing the importance of that process to them and the the power of those stories but also then to make sure that they're prop properly archived and you know also doing work in regional areas where the local historical societies um are often not well resourced in terms of preserving um, things like, well, particularly pre-digital, you know, they, they have tapes and all those sorts of things. So just trying to make sure that those stories get um, translated into um, forms that will be 
ongoing and available to you know the local communities mm-hmm. to their to their own um, families etc for generations to come is another really important kind of activist work I think of a historian and I think that I mean thank you for for putting it in that frame because I think a lot of times people don't think of an archive as a space of activism but mm-hmm. it, it it is I mean that's it it can become the basis and and the act of collecting I mean I think again in my experience in in this discussion so what has often been denied in many cases because of structural racism inequality um, is or rapid pace of change or any other number of historical factors um, is is a problem of just not there's nobody's designated to collect and if the government's not interested in doing it then it falls to whom it falls to elders it falls to oral tradition it's not like it hasn't been done but building some infrastructure around it is is action and it is activism and in some cases it's been legally banned in the history of the united states and i'm curious about this in australia it's been legally banned i mean for slave communities and in the jim crow period in america for african americans coming out of the civil they were not invited to collect their stories or to collect oral history it was it was illegal in many cases so recovering that is an important part of this as well i don't know if that resonates with the aboriginal experience in australia but uh, some sort of prohibition or or um, some some hard push against the collection of those stories is something we also see with indigenous groups in the, in North America. I'm not sure whether there's a there's a prohibition against the collection of the stories, but there's certainly been um, a lot of uh, uh, limiting of access of Aboriginal people to their uh, historical records. So records mm. that are that are held in Kidney State archives that are of you know, relevance to Aboriginal families where families have been denied access, but the professional historian is allowed right. to come in and, and access those records. Um, so there's been quite a lot of work that historians have done with Aboriginal people around um, gaining access to their own family stories, um, often many of which can be deeply distressing, of course. Um, so, so the archive as a site of activism is very much a right. very, very real thing here, um, maybe with a slightly dis- different um, resonance than that in, in the context that you're talking about. Just a quick reminder to listeners that you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking today to Katie Holmes, Ruth Morgan and Andrea Gaynor about environmental history and the urgency of, envi- urgency of environmental history. I want to shift over and talk a little bit about COVID now and the, and the way I want to get to that, Ruth, I want to ask you, um, because you are lead author uh, in working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, I imagine that you're pretty attentive um, were attentive during that period early in the pandemic um, when there was a sort of more global lockdown underway and terms like the anthropos appeared in the journal Nature mm-hmm. and this idea that humanity was slowing down, which meant that consumption was slowing down and we saw carbon emissions uh, slow down. 
it was an awkward, I want to get your take on it and everybody's because I felt like there was an awkwardness even in talking about it. And so it generally went like this. Nobody would choose to have a pandemic cause this, but this shows that collective action is possible, which six months ago, we were all hanging our heads and saying it's completely Im impossible. I'm, I'm condensing too many things in one, but I wonder, Ruth, what you noted then and how that might be shaping the way you connect the pandemic with the slower disaster of climate change. Mm. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting. That seems like eons ago that know, we were having it. that thought because it seems as though um, much of the world has kind of bounced back to uh, the the way of life of flying around so energetically. Cities have reopened, factories have reopened, and so forth. Um, and I think yes, there was there was that um, brief kind of glimpse of of collective action of slowing the rate of um uh, of warming um and yet also i think a, a, a wonderment of the amount of lag in the system that there is still so so much um that has been um emitted already that to slow that down to 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 reach some kind of um sustained limit on um on further change is is in some ways just go to push out that um date a whole lot further than we might want to imagine but when it came to um the ipcc report and working with um the water um researchers on and and across actually across the report we we collaborated um to put together a a a box it's called a cross a cross chapter box where uh, the different papers were contributing insights from uh different parts of the world as well as different sectors and appreciating how covid um was really part of a, a compound disaster that it was exacerbating um problems that were already um in place we've talked about poverty um but we also saw extreme weather events um certainly in, in the united states that's an example sprang to mind of having people um uh in a in an evacuation center well how do you reduce the spread of disease in those places how do you ensure that there are enough um uh, uh sanitation facilities to ensure um that uh matters do not get worse on top of the um on top of the flood or a hurricane or a bushfire for instance um you know so that was really interesting just to see that work unfolding and, and the many different um i suppose uh the ways in which as researchers we were we were also sort of bringing our own experiences to bear on that because of course we were all coming from different places with very different policies um in place and uh a sense of um how some of us have been fortunate, some, many others have not been. So it was a really interesting kind of experience to see that unfold. And, you know, the first draft of that um, box was very different to what it ended up being just because of the course of the pandemic as well. So it was, again, um, seeing sort of research done live, basically. Um, it wasn't, there was not that sense of distance that we often have as, as historians. It was happening before our eyes, which was, yeah, quite unusual. I, I know it's not the IPCC's purview necessarily um, to be seen as an, well, it should not be, I guess, to be seen as an activist organization or the reports, but but I can't help but, you know, and Greta Thunberg is is invoked at multiple points in, in the essay that we talked about. And, you know, the 
her chastisement in the fall of 2019 was strong and the student movement in the streets all around the world was was such a such a powerful moment um and then to see the pandemic and again this and i guess i don't want to overstate it but this really powerful collective action um that didn't come because of and don't take this the wrong way but it didn't become because of science per se or didn't come because of a strongly you know worded conclusion in the report i just wonder how like within the ipcc structure how you channel that like how do you take that on board and bring that into the into the work or maybe it affects you more in terms of of just wanting to keep working i, I mean maybe it's not the work itself but it's more just the will i don't even have a well-formed question around this i'm just trying to reconcile these two really complicated and really important things that I see happening simultaneously in the midst yeah, of the pandemic. No, totally that tension. And that was something um, that we grappled with as um, citizens of the world, for want of a, a better word, and then understanding the um, really vexed politics that have engulfed the IPCC and the, um, the concern about um, stepping out of our lane, so to speak, and the the precision with language, the precision mm. with evidence, and and tracing um, to to show those lines of evidence and how those um, uh, conclusions are made. That that was quite remarkable. Um, but throughout the sense of urgency, the sense of frustration coming from across the organisation and the researchers that this report needed to make a difference. And so, in terms of the the way it was composed, I think, was really interesting as historians, was a real focus on narrative, on, on we want to tell a clear story about what is happening. Um, I mean, our report is about um, working group two is about uh, vulnerability, um, impacts and adaptation. And so there's there's certainly a, uh, I suppose, a beginning and a middle and a what can we do um, or what can work. And that was also one of the things that was interesting, um, a real emphasis on how are people already adapting? How are, and what is working? So trying to give more substance um, rather than just uh, as leaving people in fear or, or concerned or perhaps you know um, overwhelmed. That actually there are things that we can be doing at community levels. People are doing them, and we can start putting more and more pressure on governments to actually mm. act. So I think that was that was how that kind of sense of we can't lose this momentum was coming right. through. I, I really like that point. Andrea, I want to ask if you want to uh, bring you in, see if you can build on it a little bit, because I'm curious how environmental history, for those who've been paying attention to it, may have already prepared the ground a little bit for people to see the inequalities that COVID brought to light. I mean, a term like environmental justice, I think is very useful when we also look and see, well, it's often environmental justice communities that have been hit hardest by COVID, it seems to me a connection worth exploring and and maybe emphasizing as a contribution of environmental history. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And the emphasis on um, inequality and vulnerability in environmental history, I think, has um, you know prepared us in that field to uh, to think about that in some detail and given us the. Oh, I guess methodological tools, but just just that orientation to those kinds of questions um, within the research we do. Um, I'm, yeah. I, I mean, 
there's many areas that look like that. So I, I don't think that environmental history is uniquely prepared in that way. Um, environmental history uh, also, of course, looks at um, the broader picture of environmental disruption and the, the kinds of unanticipated um, outcomes from that, of which COVID is one. But I, I just wanted to return to the discussion you were having previously with Ruth about um, uh, what was it? <laughs> there was something I wanted to return to, but I've just lost it. So maybe maybe we can go to Katie. Well, maybe I was going to pick yeah. up the idea of the anthropos yeah. because I think that's a really interesting term, and um, you know, it's a bit like the anthropocene. This sort of idea of the anthropos as if everybody is causing. You know, as if everybody in the world slow down and as everybody right. everybody stopped flying and stopped driving and stopped consuming, whereas in fact it was the the, the wealthy um, primarily who stopped the international travel and who who were able to work at home and who caused in that sense. Whereas you know it was again it was the people who um, have fewer resources, the people who keep our our country. Um, operating, you know, the delivery drivers, the, the healthcare workers, um, the people who collect the garbage, all those things, those people didn't stop working. In fact, their work intensified mm -hmm. in so many ways. And so like the Anthropocene, it's a deep, it's a concept which has deep inequality embedded in it. And and so I think we need to remember that in the, the notion of the anthropos. And thus when, you know, when things are lifted, you know, um, those people who've had those privileges in the first place are the ones who really are the least willing to give them up, which is what we're seeing again. This is what my colleague Kim Fortune, anthropologist, calls the quotidian Anthropocene. This this idea, if you're always looking for the Anthropocene in the United States and Australia, um, and, and so at, at a moment like the Anthropause, then there's a sort of privilege that comes from the restriction of consumption. And we might not think of it that way, but you see that you see it. It's very visible. The news media covers it. There's a sense of loss, and people talk about it, and we debate it, and and those sorts of things. But the quotidian aspect of the Anthropocene is 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 the day to day life of it in places where people are still going to work, still suffering, um, and where those, for example, again to come back to Louisiana, it's been on my mind today that the air, the particulates in the air actually increased because the government rolled back environmental air quality rules during the pandemic. We didn't want to hurt the economy. So in fact, it gets more dangerous for them rather than less, rather than less dangerous. Which, which um, is another important way in which I think environmental historians have made a contribution in looking to the idea that, you know, Rob Nixon talks about of slow violence. And, you know, that is something, picking up Andrea's point, where I think that this idea that the violence that is happening elsewhere, outside the screen, you know, out of sight, is is enables us to live a particular way and um, or to consume in the way that we consume, so that it's about it's about fashion, it's about consumption, it's about all those things. But the damage that that is doing is is not seen because it's elsewhere and it's in the developing world, it's in the poorest communities. And I think that is a concept that is really pertinent both. Um, in thinking about environmental history, but also in the, in the context of COVID as well. Where are the communities that are suffering the most? Because they're the ones that are that are not getting the full, full, full glare of the camera, as it were. We're almost up on time, and I, 
I've already been a little greedy with my guest's time, but I, um, if, if you'll permit it, I want to I want to ask Katie about a piece that you wrote um, that appeared in the Griffith Review um, titled Remaking the Balance. And you it, um, use a term which I would like to hear you say a little bit more, Generation COVID. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that that piece and what you what you spotted there, and what you were writing about. And then we'll have a chance. We'll kind of go around and anybody wants to raise any issues or, or close any thoughts that we still had on the table in the discussion. So Katie, what was that? What, what led you to that piece and to that term? Yeah. So, so the, the piece is called Generation COVID Crafting History and Collective Memory. And I, I guess it was born out of a number of things. One of which was this idea of the incredible moment of, of COVID um, and the pandemic and how it would be remembered. And as a historian, I've done quite a bit of work around memory. And so thinking about how this ongoing crisis was going to be remembered by historians, but also the, the general public in years to come, and what would be the stories that we would be telling about it and recognising that those stories, there'd be competition over who got to tell them. Um, and and that that in itself was important and that those narratives were already being crafted as we as we were in the pandemic. So that was one aspect of it and also recognising that in Australia the, the kind of most curated of our collective memories is um, what we call ANZAC, which is the story about First World War and, and Australians fighting in the First World War, which was the first mm. war that Australians participated in as a nation. And it's always seen as a profoundly um, nation-making moment um, and there's a huge amount of uh, attention that's been paid by historians and governments to celebrating really and acknowledging ANZAC and and yet in the context of the pandemic ANZAC offered us nothing in terms of a history that could help us through this moment mm. there was really not much there at all that we could look to Whereas stories from the Spanish flu that historians had not paid much attention to in Australia at all, everybody's suddenly trying to find the three historians in Australia who can talk with any authority about the Spanish flu because yeah. suddenly that was the stories that we needed and they weren't there. Um, and not only were they not there, but nor were the, nor were the stories about, you know, surviving World War II, um, extraordinary stories of, of migration and refugees and and living through the incredible difficulties of the depression and all those stories were not really part of the national narrative either. And so one of the things I wanted to do was think about that and think about what kind of stories might we find in our past to help us through and how, as I say, how were we already crafting this story of COVID? And the other part of it was actually looking at what I call Generation COVID, which is really that those the young people of, the, of this generation who've been so profoundly affected so they were the they were the the, the young people who took to the streets um, you know responded to Greta Thunberg's call who were there claiming the streets you know marching for climate action and suddenly they're at home they're online they're you know they're learning remotely they're not allowed to protest in the streets they're not allowed to do any of that they're not allowed to meet with their friends and so what would be the impact on them and what would they remember from this time? What would be their personal stories? So the piece would be trying to think through those sorts of ideas and to then think, you know, about the possibility that this was also a moment when we could imagine radically different futures. And as a historian, I've got this sort of little belief that, that um, things can unfold 
in if we have the capacity to imagine things differently. And so how might we imagine our future differently? How might we imagine our future where the values of, of equity and justice and care and stewardship are at its centre? And what do we need to do now in order to envisage that future and to and to bring it into being? So that was the other sort of strand in the article yeah. that I was exploring. So that article is Generation COVID Crafting History and Collective Memory by Katie Holmes. And I'll put the link up in Twitter and, and hopefully people will read that. Um, yeah, I mean, why are we surprised that we reach for war metaphors every time something happens? It's the only thing we've actually taken the trouble, I'm talking about the United States here, to really carefully curate as part of historical memory. And that was that discourse was happening in the United States and there was a pushback to it. And people said, yeah, but let's not let's not make it about war. Let's use the metaphor of the space program. And I was like... No, but we also have like the history of vaccines and hospitals. Like we have other things, but then what you realize is we just have been. Well, I'm being careful with my pronouns here, but I mean, many people have devalued the history of public health and medicine, um, and also women's work. And so it's a trifecta of things that have been forgotten as as historically valuable. And so, is there any wonder we reach to the martial metaphor when we need tools to think with what's happening in the moment? Just a, a quick, uh, Andrea and, and Ruth, as we're closing out, any final thoughts that you wanted to, to share? I might see if Andrea's remembered her her lost thought. Not That's the one that plagues me late at night. The lost thought is always the one that gets me at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that one will get me at 3 a.m. But um, I, I had another one in the meantime, which I've now remembered, uh, which is about the, the power of business as usual. And I think it probably relates to what I was thinking of um, in terms of uh, uh, COVID as a, a kind of, you know, exemplary story of the um, shutting down and allowing the environment to recover in some kind of way. And, of course, Katie has very eloquently um, pointed to the problem with that that idea. But sitting in, in my Western Australian cave, I can't help but be struck by the um, the story of COVID reflected in wartime stories, in fact, of the allure of business as usual and just what kind of a, a difficult um, uh, kind of proposition it is to escape in a way because um, after the Second World War, of course, people wanted on the whole to return to business as usual. They wanted a return to domesticity, to, um, you know, some semblance of a better version of their pre-wartime life. And we're seeing that also in the case of COVID. Um, people in Western Australia have had very little disruption and so are, are kind of parading our freedom to the world. We've just posted a $5 billion budget surplus. The economy is going gangbusters. Um, you know, and it's while it's wonderful to be part of that, you, you know that it, we can't continue like this. Things are going to have to change. They must change. Um, and yeah, and in fact, I think the thought I had before was the it was about whether COVID presents a difficult problem for um, the proponents of serious social transformation in the wake of the uh, climate and uh, biodiversity emergencies, because change that has even briefly um, put a dent in emissions, well, it's been really hard. It's been really hard, really difficult, really, um, you know, it's been bad. It's been bad for a lot of people. I mean, not necessarily us in Western Australia, but well, and even for some people here, but it's, it's been terrible. So uh, people would rightly think, wow, if that's what a reduction in emissions looked like, then I think we'll just go down partying. Whereas 
what environmental history perhaps hasn't done so well is contribute to the imagination of of um, you know of degrowth times of sustainable environmental um, you know a, a sort of transformation for a, a more sustainable world. Uh, and that that thought is very half formed. But basically, thinking about histories of degrowth, well, we can look at the Great Depression. I mean, that's not the kind of degrowth history we want. That's that's not what degrowth in the present would mean. What kinds of histories could we write? What kinds of historical stories could we tell that su better support um, our imagining of a more fair and sustainable world? Those are more than half-formed thoughts. Those are great thoughts, and I'm glad that we, we got them. And particularly, I think it's important for us to note that a lot of those kind of breathless anthropos kind of pieces, which I very much enjoy, and I think they're provocative, but they were written in those first three months. And and the disinformation campaigns and the conspiracies, and in the US, uh, uh, the uh, terrorism against the Capitol building and, and, and the many other things that have followed do seem like a very steep price. So they don't have to be causally linked, but in the US, we're grappling very much with that. So I think there's a lot to think with there, Andrea. Ruth, I'm going to give you the last word here as we're closing out. Oh, gosh, the responsibility. Um, I suppose to... Well, you're um, a lead author. I mean, you've got, you're used to this kind of pressure, so... But I'm not a coordinating lead author. Let's just oh. be clear. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, I think one of the, I suppose, we've talked about the sorts of histories we um, might need for, for more sustainable, more just futures. I think you know, in, in sort of response to uh, some of those um, kind of thoughts that we've been discussing, I think what is, and we've seen this acutely in Australia over the past 18 months, is what could have been this. And, and I think that's, there's, there's hope there as well as frustration and something that I think um, Andrea makes a point of in our article about um, the role of history in terms of justice, um, that it's holding people to account and there have been so many opportunities along the road whether we talk about um climate whether whether we talk about biodiversity whether we talk about um all matter of questions of justice and whether we could live differently that there have been opportunities to make other choices and you know that's that's potentially something that is quite galvanizing and, and energizing if we can tell those stories and that is a way to help people imagine futures that don't have to be science fiction or don't have to be, you know, somehow disconnected from our reality because we can show how we almost got to that point. Or if only we'd got our vaccinations 12 months ago. Um, imagine Katie wouldn't be in a 260th day of lockdown um, potentially. So those sorts of sliding doors moments and, you know, that's just a, a throwaway line, I suppose. But just to think what could have been, and I think in our histories we do have those opportunities to explore them. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And please do join me for the next COVID Calls, which will be 6 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday. So we're doing a lot of time zone work here today. Um, but 6 p.m. Eastern Time, September 30th, I'll be talking with Francesca Dominici about the problem of air quality and wildfire and COVID uh, in the United States. So please do join me for that. And it's a big day tomorrow. I've also got uh, disaster researcher and emergency management expert Dave Neal following Francesca Dominici. So it's uh, two COVID calls tomorrow morning, um, Korea time, tomorrow afternoon, United States time. And I want to thank my guests today, Andrea Gaynor, Ruth Morgan, and Katie Holmes. I knew this was going to be a great conversation. 
I've kept you too long, but I really learned a lot. And I learned a lot from your article, Doing Environmental History in Urgent Times. And thanks for your contributions and for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.